Alright, so you are now listening to the Working Poet Radio Show. This is your host, Joseph Lappin. I'm here in Pasadena, California with the wonderful Gail Holst Warhoft. And we're about to have an interview. We're about to talk about Greek culture. We're about to talk about music. We're about to talk about poetry and the junta. And she just has a really powerful, powerful story. She is a professor at Cornell University in the Department of Comparative Literature. She's also director of the Mediterranean Studies Initiative and faculty associate of the Cornell Center for a Sustainable Future. Her areas of interest include modern Greek literature, music, Greek literature from antiquity to the present, and she's also a poet, translator, and musician. She's the author of The Cue for Passion, The Grief and Its Political Uses, Dangerous Voices, Women's Laments in Greek Literature, and Theodorakis' Myth in Politics and Modern Greek Music, as well as the poetry collection Penelope's Confessions. So, Gail, thank you so much for joining us here in this park with all these ambient noises. Mm-hmm. How are you doing today? I'm well, thanks, Joe. Thank you for having me on no the program. No problem. And welcome to the show. This is your first time on the show. So, what we all know about you is that you are just really have a huge understanding of Greek culture, Greek art, Greek music. But what maybe people don't realize is you're from Melbourne, Australia. <laughs> so, can you tell us about where you're from in Melbourne? And give us some context. What was it like growing up there? And then eventually I want to know how you got into Greek culture. Well, I grew up um, in an area of Melbourne where it was a sort of... In those days, it was almost the bush. It was about 15 miles out of town. And it was where a lot of artists and writers lived. So it was an interesting little area. But growing up as a kid, I was more interested in the fact that it was bush. And there were... You know, I was able to have a horse and dogs and animals and you know I had a wonderful time growing up in the semi-rural Australia it's now wall-to-wall suburbia but in those days it was much more defined as the country and the city and um, then I went to university but I went to university very young and I graduated at 19 and I thought well what do I do now all I wanted to do was go to Europe and um, so I went to Europe with my parents I didn't go to Greece and then I went back and all I could think of was how to save money to get back to Europe because that's where I felt I wanted to be. And uh, the cheapest way to get to Europe from Australia was on a Greek boat. They used to come out full of immigrants to Australia and who we needed labor in those days. We were short of labor. So Mediterraneans would come to Australia and work in the factories and work in pretty unpleasant jobs until they saved some money. And I, so I went on this migrant ship which was full of bunks you know was underneath the water line six women to a cabin and how old were you at this time 21 21 so i arrived in athens not i didn't know a word of greek and i looked at it and i thought this is my place this is where i belong what From was it first, it was something about the it wasn't anything to do with ancient greece it was to do with the people the way they related to each other it was music that i liked the sound of in the background although that didn't mean much to me at the time it was just ambient sort of uh, music but it was something about the life in the streets that I loved it was winter uh, there weren't any tourists there practically and there was this wonderful atmosphere of warmth and people sitting in tabernas drinking wine together and singing and I thought this is this is for me so tell me more about being on the boat what do you remember most about that that must have been a tough journey right it was a month a month at sea on a rotten boat with terrible food and um 
So fortunately, some friends of mine were on the boat. We'd all finished university around the same time. We'd all sort of decided to go to Europe. And um, we went to the captain and we, say, and we said, um, we'll put on a play for you. We'll put on a review and a <laughs> musical. And, but we need a cabin to rehearse in. So, of course, we were able to use a nice cabin upstairs to rehearse in, and we slept there half the time and put on a musical show, and it became a bit more bearable. But I wouldn't recommend it, sitting for a, a month at sea on a Greek was, boat. Was there a lot of music on the boat, or...? No, not no. much. A bit of, you know, canned music, not very nice. So it wasn't like the Titanic scene where everyone's playing music underneath? I don't it. think that was... <laughs> I don't think it was financed to that degree uh -huh. to afford a chamber orchestra. Oh, what about underneath the boat, when they're all playing yes. the fiddles? Yes, and... yes, as a matter of fact, if I'd known anything about Greek music, I'd have gone down to where the sailors hung uh, out, and then I'd have heard some good okay. music and seen some good dancing. Ah, really? So you show up and you're in the streets, and mm -hmm. there's something about the street life that really appeals to you. What yeah. was it? Do you remember? I like the way people related to each other. They all touched each other all the time. You know, they'd be having a conversation, and one would grab you by the arm or something, or grab each other by the arm. They'd talk, they'd, they'd laugh. There was a tremendous vitality in the, in the streets, and uh, I liked the fact that you'd go into these little... You could eat very cheaply, and you could drink for nothing. You know, there'd, there'd be barrels of wine in all directions. And I met a very nice group of... Uh, Greeks and foreigners very quickly when I was there, and um, including uh, the poet Katerina Angela Kiruk, who turned out to be the goddaughter of Cousins Aikis, and she's one of Greece's leading poets, and uh, she married an Englishman. So I was in this group of people who were, there was a British sculptor married to a Greek and so on, and we all had English as a common language, and we gradually, at least I gradually learned Greek. I didn't go about it very uh, systematically. So you're there, yeah. and how are you? Because at the Working Poet Radio Show, we're interested in that journey that you take in order to get to that creative life that you want yes. to get well, to. Well, it took me some time. I didn't think I had any talent to do anything much. Um, I was sort of in awe of everybody else's talents, and but I happened to be in Greece. Uh, you know, I had to go and work for a while, and then came came back and. You went and to the, England to work? Yes, I went for a while after I'd worked as a you know, teacher of English as a foreign language for a while in Greece. I eventually went to England because I'd run out of money and worked for a little while. Hated being in England. Wanted what were to get you doing out there for work? I was a relief teacher, and it was ghastly, just ghastly. I mean, there was, it was the age of the comprehensive schools where there were 2,000 kids in a school, and they grew graded them from N, you know. N? So I would, the relief teachers got the classes nobody wanted, which was, you uh. know, 3N and 4, 4 uh, F, you know. And the kids were just completely out of control. And I went to have this interview with the headmaster and he said to me, what do you want to do with your life? I said, I want to be a writer. I want to write, uh, you know, something. I don't know quite what yet. And he said, don't expect to teach the kids anything. This is the headmaster. He said, uh, you might get some good material for a novel. <laughs> oh, well, so that was... You didn't get I, anything good? You know, all no. I got was the feeling that i got to get out of here, you know, <laughs> as, as fast as I can. Well, so, is that an important feeling for a creative, that feeling that you need to go somewhere else? I mean... I don't know. I really don't know. I mean, for me, I had always felt that Australia was... Um, it, when I grew up, it was a pretty prejudiced society, very macho, very 
anti-intellectual. It wasn't a society that appealed to me. I liked the bush, I liked my family and their friends, but it was a feeling it was us against them. You know, the society at large was not appealing and the small group of people who cared about the arts and so on uh, were very much a minority. So I felt I wanted to be somewhere more exciting. And also, you know, because of British colonialism, Australia is Australia is very much um, a sort of ex-colonial society where Anglo-white culture has always dominated. And when I grew up, there was this, something called a White Australia policy where no Asians were allowed into Australia. What? And to keep them out, they gave dictation tests in any language they chose. They could give them, give, they could give an Indonesian a dictation test in Swahili um, and say, no, I'm sorry, you can't meet our dictation test. It was unbelievable. Wow. And um, so delighted to be in a culture where there was also, you know, it was, there was a lot of influence of the Irish in Australia, a lot of heavy drinking of beer and people got drunk and they fought, they, there'd be a punch up outside the pub. Greece, they got drunk and they started dancing. I thought, that's better than punching each other up. You know, the dancing was fantastic. And when you don't know, understand the music yet, and you don't understand the language, the dancing is completely universal. You can look at that and you can see, I like that, you know. Mm -hmm. That was my first, I think, my first love affair with Greek culture was with, with dance. dancing. So you're, you're, you're in England, you got mm -hmm. some money, and then you came back to Greece to that culture yeah. that you love, the dancing, the spirit. Mm -hmm. What happened next? Having thought that that was where I was going to stay, um, uh, on the 21st of April, 1967, there was a military coup d'etat. And I didn't know much about the politics of Greece. Of course, I was still a novice. I spoke a bit of Greek by this time. But I thought, um, you know, coup d'etats are things that happen in Humphrey Bogart films. They don't happen, or you know, something in the Foreign Legion. You know, you don't have a coup d'etat in the middle of Europe in 1960s. But it was um, so. There was at first there was a sort of uh, total blanket of, of news and military marches being played on the radio, and but um, well, within within a week. Within a few days, uh, they, they had passed all these laws, the usual laws that d dictatorships pass. Lack of freedom of assembly, you can't, you know, not more than five people can meet together. Um, not more than five people. Something like that. Wow. I can't remember what the number was. But, but it's it similar. Was yeah. Similar. Then there was this um, military law will apply, etc., etc., etc. All communists' organizations are banned. And the 13th promulgation of the junta was a complete ban on the music of Mikis Theodorakis. Now, I hardly knew. I did know who Mikis Theodorakis was because I'd heard some of his songs. But um, I thought, gosh, uh, this the country must really respect music to ban every, everything he'd written. You know, and he'd written all sorts of love songs, film scores, everything, everything he, he wrote was banned. And I, I think that was what piqued my interest. I thought, what is it about this man's music that makes it so dangerous and why does it have to be banned? You could be jailed for six months for simply putting on a record in your own house of his music. Oh, did that happen to anyone you know? Yes, no, not anybody I knew, but I, it did happen. People who were anti-dictatorship students and so on would get on a bus 
and they would start singing very softly one of his songs. And if the bus driver was sympathetic, he'd close the door of the bus and they'd just circle around with the whole bus singing a Theodorakis song. It was So I got interested in this man and his music and what's going on and I stayed on for about a year with everybody said, oh, this won't last, this is Europe, it can't last. And then I began to feel rather bad. I found out there was torture going on, Theodorakis is in prison, this man who's written all this wonderful music that I began to... Somebody gave me a record on the day after the coup d'etat. He went down to a local um, record store and he found this record of Theodorakis and he said he knew I was interested in Greek music and finding out more about it. And he said, you better have this. You won't be able to find one in the whole of Athens by tomorrow. They'll have cleaned out all the record stores. So I had this record, which I immediately began to play, of course. And my neighbors would creep around and listen to because they all loved it. What is a Pete, what is a lyric you remember from that moment? The lyric I remember best is a version of, of a song where you have Theodorakis himself playing on the piano. You have a very famous bouzouki player, Manolis Shotis, playing bouzouki. And you have um, a singer called Grigoris Pizikotis, uh, the sort of Sinatra of He's as famous as Sinatra in Greece and has to me the similar quality. And I'm a great Sinatra fan, and I always feel that Sinatra has something in his voice that if you had to say, What does America sound like? you'd put on a Sinatra song and you'd have an idea. You know, there's something about that voice. The same with Pithikotsu singing a Greek song. If you wanted to hear what Greece sounded like in the 60s and 70s, you'd put on Pithikotsu. And I think most Greeks of that period would say the same. So here is this man singing, and I realize that the song is actually a lament of a mother for her dead son. So it's a man singing, but it's a mother's lament. And the poetry is written by Ritsos, um, who is one of the great Greek poets, very, very famous poet, and Yanis uh, Ritsos. And um, he actually wrote the poem in the 30s, but it was banned and actually burnt in a fire when um, there was another dictatorship in the late 30s and they publicly burnt his, his poem because it was a lament of a mother for her son killed in a, in a um, street protest against the conditions of tobacco workers. Mm. And they killed the son and in the newspaper there was a photograph on the front page of a mother bending over the dead body of her son on the street. And that, of course, evoked for the Greeks um, another epitaphios, which is the Good Friday ceremony in the Greek church is called the epitaphios. And it is the Virgin Mary leaning over the body of her adult son. So there's, there's religious associations, there's ancient associations with this word epitaphios. And uh, so I'm beginning to learn all this stuff and it begins to interest me more. But the lyric that stays in my mind is, um, a day in May you left me and the mother saying to her son, she's addressing her son and then she says in, in spring when you used to go up onto the flat roof of our house and you'd look up to the heavens and you'd say one day this will be ours and you never tired of staring at the stars and you'd milk the light of the universe with your eyes and I thought oh this is something, this line of poetry stuck in my mind so much. And um, 
So I begin to learn to read this language. I begin to listen to more music by him. And then I begin to feel guilty. Sitting, I'm sitting around in Greece. The poet Ritsos is under house arrest. Theodorakis is in jail. And then he's moved into the remote mountains of the Peloponnese, into house arrest up there so that he won't be able to contact anybody. And I think, well, I should be doing something about this situation. I should be publicizing and I should be talking to people. And I went to London um, and joined a group of Greeks in London who were opposed to the winter. And it was very wonderful. We were all tremendously idealistic, but um, they just tended to sit around every night talking about how sad it was and crying and, you know, singing Theodorakis' songs. But I thought, this is not getting anything done against the Hunter. And I found out there was a woman called um, Diana Kim. She was an English woman, but she'd been in Greece during the Civil War, and she and another woman had compiled lists of political prisoners. And what they were trying to do was get financial and material support to the wives of the prisoners who had been interned. And they were all on the left. This was a sort of left-right division that was going on still in Greece and has been for a very long time. So this woman said, when I said to her, look, I want to do something about Greece, she said, don't try and play the heroine. She said, you're useless. You know, you're not Greek. You speak Greek, okay, but, you know, if we were to send you into Greece, um, you'd be as conspicuous as... Uh, God knows what, you know, don't try and do that. Uh, why don't you go, if you want to do something, go back to Australia and write about it there. There are a quarter of a million Greeks in Australia. Why don't you do something there? And she sort of planted a seed and eventually I did go back to Greece, not only for that, but I was also um, wanted to visit my family. So ended up driving from London to Madras overland. <laughs> stopping by Greece on the way and taking some illegal literature into Greece and giving a few messages to people, but essentially doing nothing of any use. But in Sydney, um, I, I moved from Melbourne to Sydney because um, of various reasons, including the fact that the Melbourne Greeks couldn't get on, couldn't get over the fact that Sydney Greeks were all fighting and they wouldn't unite against the dictatorship. So they said, maybe if you go up there, you can do something. So. I went to these meetings. I didn't succeed in making them get on, but I became involved and, um, you know, meetings every week. We worked with, a, I began to work as a journalist then, and then I started playing the harpsichord. I uh, hadn't played any music while I was in Greece, but I went, I decided to take up the harpsichord. So I spent these years in Sydney, I spent six years uh, learning the harpsichord and Baroque music and being a journalist. And as a journalist on a left-wing paper, it was a national paper, but it had a left-wing bent. So they let me write about Greece, as well as being a music critic. I was a music critic and a Greek expert, so-called, you know, political stuff on Greece. So when uh, Theodorakis is eventually released in 1970-71, because of health reasons, they get him out, they think he's going to die in prison. Um, he goes to Paris, and then he begins touring the world. And we find out he's going to come to Australia to give concerts against the Junta. So this is well after you're in the room listening to his music illegally. Yes. Yes. And now you find he gets out, and he's on the way yes. to Australia, and you're sitting there waiting for him. I'm sitting there not believing that this man could ever come to Australia and that I might meet him one day. You know, he was like 
a legend in Greece by this time. He's larger than life, and he happens to be six foot four in a country where most people are, are well under five foot eleven. So he was an extraordinary looking man too. And um, so with the Committee for the Restoration of Democracy in Greece, I go out to the airport and they haven't brought an interpreter. So somebody picks me up and puts me in a chair next to me and says, you interpret for the press conference. And I thought, this is like sending me out to umpire a cricket match or, you know, <laughs> referee a football match. I know yeah. nothing. You know, yeah. what am I going to do? So somehow we got through this. And um, after that, he was fascinated that there was this person who was so interested in music and in Greece and in him and so on. So uh, before they left Sydney, the band came to my house to visit and he sees a harpsichord and he said, do you play that? I said, yes. He said, um, play us something. So I stumbled through a bark, you know, slow movement, having had too much wine and so on. And um, he says, when the hunter falls, you will be in my orchestra. I said, oh, yes. You know, it's the sort of thing people say, you know. So... Two years later, the Hunter Falls. Well, what was, give me a little bit of background on that day. What was that like? Uh, well, you know, his lead singer said to me, I understand, because she could see I was just, you know, glassy eyed. She said, I understand just what you mean. She said, when I met him, it was like meeting God. And I said, well, I said, I don't know what to say to the man. You know, he was so, he'd been through, he'd been tortured and tortured. He, almost every bone in his body had been broken for his left-wing beliefs. And um, he'd been under house arrest, and at the same time, music poured out of him. He, he's written over a thousand songs, and most Greeks know hundreds of them by heart, and some of them are. And then he's written operas and concertos and God knows what else. But um, So I was just so in awe of this man, and I certainly didn't think he was the slightest bit serious about having these, nor was there any sign at that stage that the dictatorship would fall. So I thought, well, that's the end of that. That was wonderful, but, you know, I'll never see him again. But I did go on playing his music and telling people about his music and writing about the Greek dictatorship. And then the dictatorship fell in July 1974. I just about heard the news, packed my bags and went back to Greece. I mean, it was within weeks I was back there. Um, I was so excited to see what it would be like to be in a free Greece, you know. And, uh, and what was it like? At first it was absolutely ecstatic. People were ecstatic, you know. People couldn't believe that they suddenly had the freedom of movement and that the Communist Party was made legal so that people, you know, people who had never known a day of freedom were suddenly free. And Theodore Theodorakis returns from Paris. He'd been living in Paris. And um, I went to a concert in a football stadium where there must have been 100,000 people there. The whole of Greece seemed to be in this stadium, you know, and he's up there, this great big figure conducting it. And um, during the time that I was in Australia, I had got interested in this music called Rebetica that was the basis of his popular music. But it was earlier. We're talking about 30s, 20s, um, really low-class music about drugs, uh, a lot of it was about hashish, some of it was about cocaine, all sorts of hard drugs as well, prison, low down music, you know, and, but it was the basis of all this wonderful two dances, especially associated with an, a dance in 9-8 called the Zebekiko, which was the most exciting rhythm. And um, 
was the only solo male dance in the Greek repertoire. And if a man danced that, he paid the bazooki player, he'd say, I want this tune. And the floor was his. Nobody dared walk onto that floor unless he invited them. Or, you know, there could have been, there were knife fights over the right to dance as their people. So there was this wonderful dance that I loved to watch. And there was the bazooki, which became the sort of, I suppose, the iconic instrument of Greece. But it only came in about the 30s. Before that, they were playing a mixture of Middle Eastern instruments and local um, sort of folk instruments. But the bazooki became a sort of city instrument. It's connected with urbanization. And the reason that it became popular was because in the 1920s, there was a Turco-Greek war. And the Greeks uh, invaded the hinterland of Izmir on the Turkish coast. Um, and they were defeated. And by the peace treaty that followed, the international peace treaty that followed, the international community said, we don't want any more fuss between these Greeks and Turks. All Christians uh, had to leave Turkey and all Muslims had to leave Greece. This, and this meant in the Muslim case, four or 5,000 people were uprooted. In the Greek case, it meant, in the Christian case, let's say, it meant a million people came into a country with a population of four and a half million. So the whole country was transformed by these immigrants from Asia Minor who played all sorts of really late Ottoman music, Turkish music. So you have this wonderful blend that occurs in the poorest quarters where the refugees are living. And it's the same with tango. It's the same with, with um, uh, flamenco. It's, it's this urbanization that occurs where you get you know, the mingling of people from different ethnic groups. And you get this wonderfully exciting sort of uh, fusion of styles going together. And that was the beginning of this Rebetka music. So I got tremendously interested in this and started writing a book about that. But while I, I was writing a book about that, Theodorakis was doing his first tour of the countryside. Which he promised to do after the Huta film. So I took a bus and went to a country concert. I thought, if I went go to a country town and see it, I'll get the atmosphere. I'll be able to write about it and I'll see what the atmosphere is like. So we go to a small town miles away in the middle of nowhere. And I arrived there and I informed somebody in his entourage that I was coming. There was a ticket waiting for me. And I came out of the concert and I went backstage to congratulate him and say hello. And he said, he said, Gail, where's your harpsichord? <laughs> I, said, <laughs> I said, don't have a harpsichord. Get one, he said, and you're in the band. So I managed to get a harpsichord eventually and got into the band. But it was the most amazing thing he recognized who I was, where he'd met me, the fact I played the harpsichord, and that was the beginning of my life as a Greek musician. So you take that tour with him. Yeah. Is it almost like a celebration of freedom? Yes, absolutely. Or? And every time we played it, there'd be more people at the concert than the population of the town. They'd have come from all the small villages around and everything. And just to touch him, everybody wanted to touch him. We used to hug our instruments to our chests so, because they would climb over us to get to touch Theodorakis. Mm -hmm. So it was a, it was like, I often said to me, it was a bit like being uh, in a band that was crossed between the Beatles and Che Guevara. You know, it was a, it had all the in political intensity and at the same time he was the top pop songwriter of the country. So it was, and he wrote wonderful songs. So there, there were all these elements 
and it was to do with liberation and so on. What do you think that people in America would take away from this incredible figure? Or what don't they understand? I don't think they understand that um, for a time, and I think even now, he is uh, perhaps the most significant person in the country. The person, you know, somebody said to me, they won't care when most of us die, but they'll care when Mikis Theodorakis dies because he's, he's become a sort of symbol of what tremendous um, courage and, 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 you know, belief in his own left-wing convictions, but also of a creative spirit that was just, I mean, he's nearly 90, he'll be 90 in, in July, and he's still out there do, at demonstrations in the square against the austerity measures and so on. He was badly tear-gassed a couple of years ago in a demonstration. I mean, he's just indomitable. But you said he represented a creative spirit. Yes. That, what do you mean, what, what kind of creative spirit? Well, How do you describe that? I, for me, it was to be in the presence of somebody who never stopped creating. You know, you'd be, you know what it's like, a band packs up and, and the stage guys are trying to get the instruments back into a truck and it's chaos and he'd be sitting there at the piano picking out a new melody and you'd see him, you know, while the chaos is going on, he's there and he's got a tune and it gets on a few more notes each each night, you know, after the show. And then he goes out and drinks and talks with everybody. But his, his, he never stopped creating for a minute. And it was, it was an example to me of, of um, turning adversity, turning you know, the circumstances of your life into something extraordinarily, uh, extraordinarily creative. And the energy, the energy that he gave out when he was conducting. We were, con we were playing once in a, a town where there seemed to be a plague of locusts. You know, all these fat insects started flying in amongst the band and everybody was like this, you know, none of us could control it. It was, you know, it was, it was, that was disgusting. They were everywhere. And um, he could see that the concert was falling apart. So he began conducting and hitting the bugs in time with his <laughs> conducting. And of course, we all started laughing and yeah. we went on playing, you know. He just knew how to lead people, how to get I thought, I'm going to follow this guy. You know, if he says to me, we're going to battle tomorrow, I would follow him because he has this, this thing, which is, which is um, a sort of a form of inspiration, leadership, if you like. That, that all meant a lot to me. The political stuff meant a lot. Also, just the sheer volume of wonderful melodies that he wrote. And, um, you know, and what I didn't understand when I was less... Um, knowledgeable about the poetry of Greece was that poetry was his inspiration. It wasn't the other way around. He didn't find a good tune and then try and find a lyric. He, he read great poetry all the time and from the poetry he got the inspiration to write the melodies. I think that's unusual. I think it's usually the other way around. If it doesn't 